You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We are in a study. Uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. But where we are in 1 Corinthians does not lend itself to what we are going to do together this morning, and that is to gather around in a few moments the Lord's table, and we're going to observe as believers the Lord's Supper. And then, of course, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. So for the next two weeks, I'm going to lay aside our study in 1 Corinthians to focus on the cross and what Jesus has done for us on the cross And then next week, we're going to talk about the resurrection and the difference the resurrection means for everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And so this morning, I've asked you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means that God is directing him. He's guiding John as John is recording for us the events, not only of Jesus' life, but also his death and his resurrection. And so as John tells us his version of the story, the greatest story ever, a true story of what Jesus did on the cross, as John is telling the story, this is what John says. And I want you to look at it with me this morning. Gospel of John chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. Would you stand with me this morning in honor of our Lord and the reading of his word to us? John says, and after this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put hyssop on it, and then they put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the Word of God. We believe it. We receive it. We pray that God will speak to us from it this morning. You may be seated. So John tells us that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, in those moments, just before he drew his last breath, he said something. In fact, he said several things, but just before he died, He said one word. He spoke one word that is without question the greatest word that has ever been spoken. Now, in the English text, that word is actually translated into three words for us. In the Greek language, it's just one word. And the word is tetelestai. And that word in English means, it is finished. Just one word. But wow, what a word. In the ancient world, the word tetelestai would be used of a servant who had just completed his task. It's a word that would be used of an artist who had just finished or completed his masterpiece. It's a word that would be used by a warrior who had just conquered and defeated his enemy. 
And this is the word that Jesus spoke just before he died. He didn't whisper the word. He didn't just mutter the word. He shouted this word, Tetelestai, it is finished. Someone has said that when our Lord cried out this word, it was not the despairing cry of a dying man. It was not the expression, a relief of a man whose suffering would soon be over. This was not the last gasp of a worn out life. Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Arthur Pink says that this word from our Lord was the declaration on the part of the divine Redeemer that all for which he had come from heaven to earth to do was now done. Charles Spurgeon said about this word, I would need all the other words that were ever spoken or could ever be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, I cannot attain to it. It is deep, I cannot even begin to fathom it. It's a word that when applied to the work of Christ on behalf of sinners on the cross is so great and so full of meaning that it is beyond our ability to fully understand or comprehend. But that does not mean that we should not at least try. And in these moments that we have together this morning, that's exactly what I want us to do. I want us to at least try to wrap our minds around and comprehend what Jesus meant and what he was saying when he cried out, it is finished. For one, when Jesus let out that cry, it was a declaration that all that had been said, all that had been prophesied about the Messiah had now been completed and fulfilled in him. I don't know if you realize it or not, but there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the first coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Now, Jesus is coming again, and the Bible speaks about the second coming, but just related to his first coming, to the incarnation, to the ministry of Jesus on this earth, and to his death, and to his resurrection, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that speak directly to this. See, God not only spoke through the prophets to tell the world that a Messiah was coming, God spoke in such specific detail that we would absolutely know without question when the Messiah promised by God had arrived. And there's no way this morning that I can give you all that the Old Testament says about the first coming of Jesus Christ, but let me just share with you a few of those prophecies. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, the Bible tells us that the Messiah would come from the descendants of Abraham. In other words, he would be a Jew. In Genesis 49 verse 10, the Bible tells us that he would come from the tribe of Judah. In 1 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and 13, the Bible tells us that the Messiah would be from the line of David and the rightful heir to David's throne. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible declares that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the Bible tells us that the Messiah would be God himself. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the Bible tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it talks about how soon after his birth, the Messiah would be taken to Egypt where he would come up again out of Egypt. 
In Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible talks about how the ministry of the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner. There would be one in the spirit of Elijah who would come before him. And of course, that was talking about John the Baptist. In Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14, the Bible says that the Messiah, when he comes, would be rejected by his own people. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, the Bible talks about how when the Messiah went into Jerusalem to offer his life as a sacrifice, that he would come into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey. In, for, in Psalms chapter 41 and verse 9, it talks about how he would be betrayed by a friend. In Isaiah 53, the Bible talks about how the Messiah would be numbered among transgressors. He would be crucified among criminals, that he would bear the sins of many, that he would suffer and die greatly for the iniquities and the sins of others. And in Psalm 22, the psalmist is like he's sitting at the foot of the cross and he talks about how his hands and feet, the feet of the hands of the Messiah, would be pierced and how they would cast lots for his garments. All of these things that I just mentioned that the Old Testament talks about, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And these are just a few. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament just like these that talk about the first coming of Christ. Do you know how, how unlikely it would be that one man, that all of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one man? To give some perspective to this, there's a guy by the name of Peter Stoner who lived a long time ago who back in the 50s was a professor of mathematics and analytics at, uh, at uh, uh, a college out in Santa Barbara, California. And he began to, to research this and, 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 and study the Bible. And he wrote a book called Science Speaks, where in the book he uses the principles of probability to talk about how unlikely it is that certain things that the Bible says could actually be true, but, but they are. And his point was that science doesn't disprove the Bible, it actually proves the Bible. But he talked about in that book the messianic prophecies related to Jesus Christ. And in the book, he took just eight. Now, keep in mind, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the first coming of Jesus. Peter Stoner took just eight of those prophecies, just a small sampling. And he said that the likelihood, using the principles of probability, the likelihood that those eight prophecies could be fulfilled perfectly in one man is one in ten to the 17th power. So that's one in ten with 17 zeros behind it. And then he used an illustration to help us wrap our minds around even that. He said, imagine the state of Texas. You know how big the state of Texas is? He said, imagine the state of Texas and taking silver dollars and scattering them all throughout the state of Texas, knee deep, and then taking one silver dollar and putting an X on it, and then dropping that silver dollar somewhere in the state of Texas, and then blindfolding a man and telling him to walk as far as he wanted to walk, and whenever he decided he could stop, reach down, pick up one silver dollar, the likelihood that that man would pick up that one silver dollar with the X on it would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So improbable. 
And yet everything the Bible says about the first coming of the Messiah was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. When he was on the cross, John tells us in verse 28 that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, talking about all things written about him in Scripture, knowing that everything had been fulfilled so that Scripture would be fulfilled, he cried out and he said, I thirst. Now, you know why he said that? It's because even though up until that moment, he had checked off all the boxes, he had done everything and fulfilled everything that Scripture said about the Messiah and his first coming, there was one thing that was left undone. In Psalm 69 and verse 21, the psalmist talks about looking ahead to the cross. He talks about how the Messiah hanging on the cross would cry out these words, I thirst, and in crying out those words, they would give him vinegar to drink. Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. He didn't just say that because he was thirsty. He said that in fulfillment of Scripture because this was written about him hundreds of years before he ever came into the world. He said, I thirst. And when he said that, the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross dipped in hyssop. They, 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 they dipped in hyssop this sour wine and they put it up to his lips. You know what sour wine is? It's wine mixed with vinegar. It's more vinegar than it is wine. And so what they did in response to his cry was a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, why is this important? It's important for this reason. It just tells us again and again and again that the Bible is the Word of God, that everything God says is true. Everything God says, you can believe. Everything that God says about the first coming of Jesus, everything that the Bible says about the next coming of Jesus, you can believe it. Because God doesn't get it partly right or mostly right. God does everything that he promises to do. But what this also tells us is this, is that Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah and there is no other. God said from the beginning that he would send someone into the world. And he gave us details about the one that he would send. But he is going to send someone into the world to rescue us and save us and deliver us from our sins. Jesus is the one we've been looking for. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is it. And when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He was declaring that he had done everything that Scripture had said about him. He had fulfilled prophecy perfectly. Now, there's a second thing I want you to know, and that's this. When Jesus cried out on the cross and said, it is finished, he was also making the declaration that God's work in providing salvation for sinners had now been accomplished. It's done. You see, Jesus came into this world on a mission. He didn't come into this world for his sake. He came into this world for your sake and for mine. He came into the world to do the work of his Father. And he had made this clear all throughout his ministry. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 5, verse 17, he says, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. In John 17, in verse 4, in that high priestly prayer that Jesus prays before he goes to the cross, 
Jesus prays and he says, I have glorified you, talking to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth and I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Now, what work was he talking about? He was talking about the work of redemption, the work of rescuing sinners from their sins and reconciling them to God. This is what Jesus came to do. See, this is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is about God's work of redemption, how God has chosen through Christ to save sinners. In the very first book of the Bible, we are told how we all got here, that God created. God in six days created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. God created man in six days, and on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. But then something happened on the earth that interrupted God's rest. You know what happened? Man sinned. And the curse of sin fell upon all of humanity so that now God's creation found itself alienated and separated from its creator. But then at that moment, God went back to work. A work that God had predetermined and predestined even before the foundation of the world. None of this took God by surprise. He knew what he was going to do from the very beginning. God had a plan to send his son into the world to be our savior. And so the Old Testament tells the story of how God is preparing to send his son into the world. He's going to use a nation. He's going to raise up a nation. The people of Israel, from that nation, God's going to send his son into the world. And the, and the Old Testament just doesn't tell us about a lot of, of, of Old Testament history about this Jewish people who uh, had a relationship with God. It's the story of how God was working in the Jewish people and in the world to prepare the way for his son to come and to rescue us from our sins. And that's why Paul, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, says this, And when the fullness of time had come, when the time was right, God sent forth his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time was right, God sent his son into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life. He placed himself under all the requirements and the obligations of the law. He experienced the trials and the temptations that we experience living in this world, but he was without sin. He never stumbled, even at one point. And because he was perfect, it qualified him to go to the cross and offer himself on our behalf as a substitutionary sacrifice. Scripture puts it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, him who knew no sin became sin for us that we might through him become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, that is the perfect one, for the unjust, that would be all of us. Sinners. The sinless one came and suffered for sinners that he might bring us to God. You see, when Jesus went to the cross to die, he did not die for anything that he had done. He died for everything that we have done. He suffered the punishment and the wrath of God against sin that belongs to all of us. Now listen, I don't diminish or deny the fact that we live in a world full of suffering and people suffer every day and people suffer greatly in this world every day. But I am telling you, Without question, there is no one who has ever suffered like Jesus suffered. There's just not. The Bible talks about his sufferings. How they mocked him and ridiculed him, the very Son of God. How they beat him until his face was bloody and beyond recognition. How they pulled the hair from his beard with their hands. 
How they scourged him and whipped his flesh until his flesh was peeled off of the bone. They placed a crown of thorns on his brow, strapped a cross to his back, and made him walk through the streets of Jerusalem outside the city up a hill called Golgotha. And then they laid him down on that cross and they drove spikes into his hands and his feet. And then they lifted that cross up into the air and drove it into the ground. And there he hung naked in shame and humiliation before the world that he had come to save. But that is not even the worst part of it. The worst part is that in those moments as Jesus Christ was hanging there on the cross bearing our sins, He felt the separation from the Father that is caused by sin and that's why He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Let me put it into perspective for you. In those six hours that Jesus hung on the cross, bearing your sin, He suffered the eternity of judgment that we all rightly deserve. In six hours, He experienced the hell that should be ours forever. That's what happened on the cross It's not just that they drove the nails in his hands. It's not just that crucifixion was the worst imaginable form of torture and punishment in that day. It's that Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world and he suffered the punishment that belonged to all of us in those moments that he hung there on that cross and suffered in a way that no one could ever possibly imagine. But he did that so that through him, you and I could be forgiven and justified and declared righteous before God. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering to yourself, what do I have to do in order for God to accept me, to love me, and to forgive me? The answer is nothing. Jesus paid it all. And all to Him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He's the one who washed it white as snow. Whatever your sin is, Whatever you're guilty of, and I can tell you in this room, there are people, myself included, who are guilty of unimaginable, horrible things that we've done in our life. But whatever your story and whatever your sin, just know that it has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is finished. All that's left for you to do is believe. To put your trust in the only begotten Son of God who died for you and received from Him the salvation that has already been purchased through His blood. It is finished. And then there's one last thing. When Jesus cried out and declared that it is finished, He was announcing that the hope and the promise of victory for all that have put their trust in Him, it is secure. And it is certain. There's victory in Jesus. I don't know if you remember back in 2003. It was May the 1st, 2003. Some of you don't remember it. You weren't even here. But May the 1st, 2003... George W. Bush landed on the USS Abraham Lincoln to give an address, a speech 
to the nation and to the world announcing that combat operations in Iraq, in what was then known as Operation Iraqi Freedom, that combat operations in Iraq were coming to a close. And behind him, as he's giving this speech, behind him there's a banner that's waving that says, Mission Accomplished. And so what he was saying, in essence, is that it's over. The the work that we went in there to do is done. We have toppled the regime uh, of Saddam Hussein, and it's finished. It's done. But if you remember that not long after he gave that speech, the insurgency increased in Iraq and guerrilla warfare escalated and the United States lost more troops, more soldiers in combat in the days after his declaration than we did in all the days before that declaration. And so all of his critics just kind of beat him up and they said he he spoke too soon. He declared victory too fast because obviously it wasn't over and it wasn't finished. And I think that's the way some of you feel whenever you hear someone talk about victory in Jesus. Because you know and I know that we live in a world full of conflict. Spiritual conflict. We're caught up in the middle of it every single day of our life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you for sure know exactly what I'm talking about. Because every day you fight these enemies in your life. You fight yourself, your own flesh, because you know what you should do, but you don't do it. You know the things you shouldn't do, but those are the very things you do. And so you're at war with yourself every single day. You're at war with this world. Because you feel like that you're in a world that is opposed to you, because it's, because it's opposed to the, the, your king and his kingdom. And so because the world hates Jesus and you are affiliated and associated with Jesus, the world hates you as well. And so you, you feel like you're constantly an outcast and an outsider here and that constantly you are being uh, rejected and ostracized by the world that you live in. And then you have this unseen adversary in the world, Satan himself, the powers of darkness that even though you can't see them with your eyes, you know that it's real and you know that it's present in this world. And every day you feel the spiritual conflict going on in your life and if we were to be honest there are days that we feel like we're losing the battle can I get a witness I mean there are days that you feel like you're on the losing end of this thing and then sometimes you turn on the television and you look at this war of good and evil in the world and you see things in the headlines just like this week and you think maybe good's on the losing end And it seems like evil is winning. I mean, can we really say this morning that there is victory in Jesus? And I am telling you, absolutely yes and amen, we can say that. Because when Jesus Christ went to that cross and he died, he delivered the crushing blow to Satan and to the kingdom of darkness. The Bible talks about after his death, how he went just before his resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection from the dead. Jesus went in his spirit to the fallen spirits in the spiritual realm demonic spirits held captive somewhere he went to them and he announced to them first peter chapter 3 talks about he declared to them his victory he didn't show up and say hey guys i'm finished he showed up and he said you're finished you're done you're through 
And his resurrection from the dead sealed that so that Satan is a defeated foe. Now, he's fighting this morning. But you know what? The serpent is like, have you ever killed a snake? You ever cut the head of a snake off? Well, even after his head is cut off, that body does that crazy little scary thing where it's all wiggling around. And it's still kind of frightening because I hate snakes. Can I get a witness? I hate them more than Indiana Jones, I'll tell you. But that snake is wiggling around, but it's dead. It can't hurt you anymore. And I'm telling you, if you're a child of God, that's exactly where you stand in Jesus Christ. Yes, you are still in the conflict, but you are not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory now. The victory is already yours. And you know that because Jesus Christ on his cross and through his resurrection defeated and destroyed not just his enemies, but your enemies as well. Listen, everything Satan had on you and had over you, Jesus has dealt with. Listen, the two things that Satan had on you is this, sin and death. You're a sinner, and you're guilty, and you deserve to die. And he's absolutely right. I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, and I deserve to die. But thank God for Jesus. Jesus Christ on the cross took my sin on himself. He suffered the punishment that I deserve. He died in my place and then rose from the dead so that I could share in his victory. And listen, if you're a child of God this morning, listen, you are in a win-win proposition now. You can't lose. For you to live as Christ, every day is a gift from God. But for you to die, like people think death is the worst thing. You know what the Bible says? That for a child of God, death is is not loss. Death is victory. Amen. To live is Christ. To die is gain. No weapon that the enemy forms against me can prosper anymore. Because my Savior and my Lord has conquered and defeated them all. Him writer was right when he said, Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Can you say that this morning? Hallelujah, what a Savior. If you're in Christ Jesus, listen, you have victory. It's done. It's over. It's finished. But that is only for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ this morning, we invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. We're not going to give this morning a walk down the aisle invitation with pastors standing up here, but I'm giving you an invitation this morning to put your trust in Jesus. I'm not going to share the gospel with you and not give you an opportunity today to put your faith and trust in Christ. And the truth is that putting your trust in Christ, receiving Him as your Savior, that's something between you and God. Right where you sit this morning, your seat can become your altar. And the Lord is in this place. In His gospel, He has made, he has made clear. And so today, if you've never trusted in Jesus then I encourage you today, I implore you today 
by the mercies of God that you turn from your sin and that you put your faith in Christ and what Christ has done for you on the cross. You can't save yourself. You'll never be good enough to save yourself. You'll never earn or work your way to heaven. That's not how this thing goes. The only way to be saved is to acknowledge, listen to me, is to acknowledge what a sinner you are. That you're guilty. And that you know what you deserve is death. But praise God, Jesus came and took your place and suffered the death that you deserve. Paid for your sins in full so that through him you could be forgiven. You could be reconciled to God, justified in his sight, declared righteous before him, and have the hope and the promise and the assurance of everlasting life. And all you have to do this morning is receive it. If you've never done that, would you receive it today? If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fpcmartin.org.